Good morning, good day, and good evening. Welcome to Internauts, the fortnightly CSIRO podcast where we talk about breaking science discoveries from around the world, Australia, and inside the CSIRO. I'm Jesse Hawley, and I'm joined by Sophie Schmidt. Hello. And our producer, Adrian Walton. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Today we'll be chatting about dinosaurs, dinosaurs, dinosaurs. At long last, I thought the. Are we going to talk about some dinosaurs today? I think so. My fingers are crossed. Cool. I've been planning on putting dinosaurs in every episode and I fought the urge, but today I'm letting loose. Cool. And we'll be talking with a real-life paleontologist, Dr. Steve Salisbury from the University of Queensland. He's found some cool stuff. What are your thoughts on dinosaurs? Don't hate him. (laughs) (laughs) Never met one. (laughs) Well, on that note, let's kick off the show with some dino news. Researchers have found a new Tyrannosaur named... Interonauts really could be a dinosaur, couldn't it? Interonauts. Oh, no, here come the Interonauts. Yeah, I think so. Hopefully, an informative, we'll get a spin-off entertaining kids dinosaur. Show. A nerd dinosaur. Yeah, it's got glasses, glasses and tiny arms. <laughs> it's not very good at sports. Sorry, I interrupted. Researchers have found a new tyrannosaur named Despletosaurus horneri that has a brilliantly preserved skull that answers a lot of dino questions out there about their lips, their type of skin, and even how they made love. Hey! Wow! All this from like a skull? A... Yeah. Well, I can tell you exactly how it answered those questions. Hey, please, go go right ahead. So, there is a family of dinosaurs that we all know called the Tyrannosaurids, getting some funny looks from Adrian. And they so, got, the Tyrannosaurus rex? That is a Tyrannosaurid. It's a oh, family. Okay. Um, so, there are different ones? Yeah, yeah, there are heaps. Oh, I wow. think uh, a few dozen species. What do they have in common? T- re- um, Tiny arms. An ancestor. Tiny arms, yeah, pretty much. So, they all came from smaller ones. So Smaller arms? <laughs> yeah, they sprouted their head and legs. <laughs> Lucky this isn't a visual medium because any Tyrannosaurids listening right now would just tune right out because I'm teasing them. Tyrannosaurids, Tyrannoshields. Uh, one of the smaller ones, name was Delong, which is like a Chinese word for uh, earth dragon. And that was kind of like an ancestral Tyrannosaur. It was two meters long, probably could have chased and eaten us. But um, that eventually gave rise to larger and larger ones. So some of their defining features, which you'll recognize, are large heads, mm-hmm. lots of teeth, mm-hmm. the tiny arms, and just two mm. little digits. Oh, just two, really? Yeah. I don't oh know what happened God. to the other ones. They, they just, can't uh, open jars. The product. I don't They see. can't fold bed sheets? <laughs> well, they got their heads, and as we'll get into, very sensitive snouts, so I'm sure they could have uh, at least somewhat made the bed. Um, they got long legs for fast running, mm-hmm. and at least one species, Eutyrannus, was preserved with feathers all over it. Wow. On its neck, arms, 20 centimetre long feathers, and this was a big uh, mother, nine metres long, and it was completely feathered. It so lived... does that mean feathers, does feathers mean flight? No. So what's it was nine metres. Uh, it lived up in the Arctic. Yeah, so well, it, it was... could have had 40 metre wings, couldn't it? It could have. Um, no, it was just very cold up there, and the feathers were for insulation and Body regulation tip. Ah. Uh, DeLong, like one of those early ones, the smaller two meter long ones, that was also feathered. So um, it's up for I know, speculation whether T Rex itself had feathers. What kind uh, of color feathers are we talking here? They don't know. It's often depicted as white feathers because it's in the Arctic, probably mm. snowing, good camouflage as well because they are predators. Mm. But um, no, that's not known. Though they do know the colors of other feathers of dinosaurs. Um, what's that one that was found recently? Anchionis. Uh, it's like a black and white, like a, an Australian magpie. And it had a red crest, like a wow. Yes, yeah, so they literally know the colours of this dinosaur, but you Tyrannus, no, they don't. So that's the diversity of the Tyrannosaurids, which um, yeah, is a family that encompasses quite a few. So they found a new member in there, 
Um, its name is Despletosaurus Horneri, which is named after Jack Horner. He was a paleontologist that actually um, in Lost World, Alan, you know, Sam Neill's character was based off Jack Horner, mm. um, a real life guy, and he was the uh, informer on uh, Jurassic Park, helped All right. you know, just give them information about what they should look like. But anyway, so this dinosaur has been named after him. He also did a lot of work in the area where they found Despletosaurus. I went to a dinosaur talk one time by um, an Australian Did many dinosaurs show up? Who did the talking? Um, I believe his name was John Long. And uh, I asked him how T-Rex had sex because they're on two legs and uh, just they got a big tail. So the mounting procedure would have been quite ungainly. And he said they don't know. Uh, So I'll keep an eye out for that. Okay. Thanks. Let us know. And hey, if there are any Tyrannosaurs listening and you can inform us of how you procreate... (laughs) Give us a buzz. Do we have a number? one 800 internauts. That's what I numbered it, call it. Oh, you can. Social, okay. social at Syro? Yeah, social media at csiro.au. Tell us how T-Rex bonked. Anyway, one of the questions about Tyrannosaurs that was answered by this skull was whether they had lips. So you might remember from Jurassic Park or a lot of depictions of dinosaurs, they got these big teeth hanging out the side of their mouths and you can just see them like uh, crocodiles. And aside- You have some sort of lip, don't you? Uh, you've got an edge of the mouth, but a lip is this soft, fleshy part yeah. that actually covers the teeth so they don't get damaged. So, interestingly, in the animal kingdom, uh, all vertebrates, I think, except for crocodiles, have lips that cover their teeth. So, some argue that tyrannosaurs have lips to cover up so they don't get damaged. But the depictions of the T-Rex with these lips, they look gormless, like Labradors or something, like all sealed up. <laughs> it's crazy. But this skull, the Displetosaurus, clearly had no lippage. So um, their teeth would have hung from the side of their mouth. So it would have been walking like, around. So think crocodile. Think crocodile, yeah. Oh. You crocodile, alligator, depending on you. They would have you... walked past, and um, some tyrannosaurs had seven centimetre long teeth, and they would have been hanging from the side of its mouth, which is a very like daunting thing for it to be mm. walking around flagrantly with. Um, another cool thing about this... Not flagrantly. Uh, it was just hanging out the side of its mouth. like it. It's flagrant It wasn't just me. hanging off its hip. <laughs> yeah. What a weird place for a tooth. Oh, it's coming from your mouth. No, that's pretty normal. I bloody collect them. They actually have uh, coprolite, which is fossilised dinosaur turds, with T-Rex teeth in the turd. So a tyrannosaur has been eating uh, an lost animal, a tooth, lost a tooth, gone through pooped it, it out. pooped it out, and they've got a fossil of that. Isn't which incredible? is so, what's so great it's about um, coprolites? I wouldn't say beautiful, but it's interesting. <laughs> it, uh, it, it suggests what they're doing in their lifetime and actual their behavior as opposed to just what they look like. So that's cool. But um, also, this skull had a mask. Imagine, like, um, do you know plovers or mask lap wings, the ones that sit in the punk, the yellow face? Yep. Well, this Despletosaurus had a mask of large, hard, flat scales, uber armored, and it would have had little horns coming off and around its eye. And it's all very solid. Just because it wasn't scary enough. Yeah, I know. So, um, Sheesh. Is that really... to make it look more impressive to you know potential partners? Maybe. Mm. Um, we'll get to that in a second. But uh, also, they were very large and well-armoured, so it would have been good defence, and they were getting in a, a row, oh. a bar fight. <laughs> <laughs> into a blue. <laughs> yeah. Getting into a stink with a Tyrannosaurus. Uh, most exciting, though, is... Um, pocketed throughout the whole skull, especially along the tip of the snout and the lower jaw, were these little pores called foramina, which are actually holes in the skull that allow nerves to go from the skin into their brain. And it was re- ridiculously dense of all these uh, nerve holes, which is like in you know, the back of your 
entertainment unit. I don't, even, I don't know what it is for it. But they got the holes for the cords of the DVD player goes yeah. as well. So they have those all throughout their skull, which suggests sensitivity in the skin. And they had almost identical um, placement as there are in crocodiles and alligators. And scientists know that the sensitivity of the, the snout of crocodile is as much as uh, human fingertips. Wow. And the crocodiles... And were they picking up um, vibrations in... in well, I guess for this it would be wouldn't be water like a crocodile; it'd be air. Is it is it sound pressure like that, or is it smell? Is it do we know? Yeah, you're totally right. In crocodiles, it helps in the water, so you can't see it's murky. There are fish swimming around. Each beat of their tail will hit these um, sensitive points on the, on the skin and tell it where it is. But they also use it's it as son- that wouldn't be sonar. It's, I guess it's primitive sort of sonar, isn't it? Um, I guess it's a- yeah, they're not. I think sonar is like letting something out and letting it come back in. This is just an input of, okay. of the movement in the water. But um, crocodilians actually use it for uh, seduction. So they'll they'll like vibrate in the water, Ooh. and they're really sensitive snouts. They like nuzzle each other. And mm. the researchers um, talking about the Tyrannosaur call it pre-copulatory play. So they would nuzzle each other with their snouts. Foreplay. Foreplay. Yeah. Foreplay to anyone else. And uh, the, that doesn't wear a lab coat. The more, <laughs> the more sensitive. In bed. <laughs> so it's kind of sexy, I don't know. Looking at Jesse, yeah. <laughs> um, the more sensitive the, the nuzzling between the Tyrannosaur snout suggests there might be a good mother or a father and they could be able to nestle gotcha. the chicks and mm. create a nest. All these things, because they're such large animals, they don't have really proper forelimbs. They have to be able to do it with their snout, like yeah, create right. a nest and, and seduce and look after the babies because they've got tiny little chicks. Um, all these things require delicacy. And uh, their snout suggests that they would have had that. So it sucks to be that dinosaur without, you know, the face flaps. Yeah, and they're like walking into trees and stuff. Oh, here comes Gary. Get here, Gary, you stink. <laughs> they have face flaps. Yeah, so they're, they're lipless, which doesn't sound too sexy, but um, they're nice and, and sensitive. They weren't good kisses, snout. but they were caring parents. They could nuzzle like you can't imagine. <laughs> We're about to talk to Dr. Steve Salisbury from the University of Queensland, who's been working with a diverse team of researchers, including those from the CSIRO, on a West Australian coastline of dinosaur tracks known as the Dinosaur Coast. So you work on the Dinosaur Coast. Could you tell us a bit uh, where it is, firstly, and what why it's a uh, unique dinosaur trackway? So the, um, the Dinosaur Coast is on the Dampier Peninsula in the West Kimberley region of Western Australia. Um, the closest town is Broome. And there's about 100 kilometres of coastline along the Dampier Peninsula um, where the Broome Sandstone is exposed. And the Broome Sandstone is about um, between 140 and 127 million years old. And where it's exposed, um, we have tracks of dinosaurs, lots and lots of dinosaurs. There are thousands of tracks and at least 21 different types of dinosaurs represented. It's pretty amazing. Men, oh men. Um, what, what type of ecosystem was it at this time when these tracks were made? And was it in a similar time period or spread out over some time? Um, so as best as we've been able to work out, looking at the rocks in the area, um, back then, and probably best to just say about 130 million years ago, uh, the area was part of a big delta system that flowed from the north to the south. Um, so... The area around Womadon, or James Price Point, where we um, did a lot of our research and has been the focus of the, the recent paper that came out, um, that would have probably been between 5 and 10 kilometres inland from the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was probably 
part of a, a vast river plain, um, might have been a couple of kilometres across, lots of sandbars and abandoned channels, and either side of that river system were fern and cycad-dominated forests with also aracarian pine trees and things, and we, we found the remains of those plants in some of the rocks. Um, and it looks like sort of periodically might have been seasonal, might have just been sort of freak events. Um, the area was flooded, and when the floodwaters receded, um, it left a layer of probably about 10 centimetres thick of sort of silty sand. Mm -hmm. And as that has started to dry, um, dinosaurs have come out and walked all over it, and their tracks have been preserved. And it looks like in the Womadon area, at least, the majority of tracks are in a single horizon. So they're all probably formed, you know, within a, you know, a few days or a week or so um, because that's probably about the amount of time that the surface would have been amenable to, to tracks being made on it. And in areas where those tracks and the surfaces hardened sufficiently but not too hard that it started to crack up um, and importantly where that surface has been reburied by more sand um, that's where we find the tracks preserved now as the as the wave action is starting to erode the coast away we Did see them emerging on reefs and and rock platforms all the way along that coastline can you tell us a little bit about why those footprints were preserved so well over time was it the sand yeah it's the fact that they're in a, a different layer there was obviously at the time good for preserving tracks um yeah because if it was if it didn't have enough um mud in it if it was too sandy like you know down on the beach when you leave footprints in the sand they, they don't really sort of last very long um so it's a little bit muddy and quite so fairly plastic and and moist um because probably because the the layer was sort of on the water table um but then yeah it's the fact that that layer with all the tracks in it has been buried with another layer of sand sorry quite a, a big powerful river um and then with time, as the, the coastline has eroded through these rocks, it's the difference in the composition between the sand layers and the muddier layers that is resulting in um, one of them uh, being exposed as the sand gets eroded off. And it looks like there's, because there's a lot, of, obviously with a lot of sand, we get plenty of silica um, getting mobilised in, in the rock itself. And these track layers seem to have been Solidified, so they're really quite hard in a lot of places, and that's that's what's made them made them more resilient to weathering than the overlying sands that have buried them. Such a lucky series of circumstances to get them to preserve like that. Yeah, I mean, normally, you know, most tracks, everything makes a track normally when it when it walks if it's in the right sort of sediment. But you know, most of the time, those <coughs> sort of things don't get preserved in the fossil record. So to have an instance where you know, first off, we've got an environment that is conducive to tracks being made and also one where there's clearly a lot of dinosaurs wandering around and then to have them preserved and then to, to find them 130 million years later makes you realise just how unique places like this are. It's the right place, right time for everyone involved, the dinosaurs and us. <laughs> Very much so. Without going back 130 million years ago necessarily, would you be able to give us um, a little history into this particular discovery? 
Yeah, well, the um, the tracks in this area have been known for a very long time. This is not news at all, really. Um, probably they've been known for, for thousands of years because they form part of a song cycle for the Indigenous people of the Kimberley. So a lot of their creation mythology incorporates um, dinosaur tracks, um, but stories that involve the dinosaur tracks um, relate to a creation being called Morella, the emu man, and wherever he went, he left behind these giant three-toed tracks that you know, essentially look like tracks of a giant emu. Um, we recognise these tracks today as those of a meat-eating dinosaur, and they were named Megalosaurus brubensis back in 1967. Um, they sort of came to the attention of people in Broome um, probably around the turn of the 20th century and definitely in 1935 a group of Girl Scouts found them uh, or Girl Guides found them um, at Minyu, Gantium Point um, and they were they came to the attention of the West Australian Museum in 1945 and a short paper was published in 1952 and then a more substantial one in 1967 where these tracks were named but since then not, not a lot happened um, and it wasn't until the sort of late 80s that um, more sort of insights into the dinosaur tracks of the, of the Dampier Coast came about, and that was through the efforts of um, a keen sort of local naturalist named Paul Folks, who was the first person to recognise sauropod tracks in this area, so something different to these three-toed tracks that had been assigned to Megalosaurus. Um and that sort of sparked a renewed interest from the West Australian Museum. And um, in the sort of early 90s, it was um, recognised that there was, you know, potentially quite a high diversity of tracks in this area. But because of the, the link to the song cycle, um, access to a lot of the places where the tracks were was quite sensitive. And it wasn't until um, 2008 when the threat of industrial development loomed over Womerton, um, you know, in the, in the shape of a $45 billion LNG processing precinct that oh the decision was made to sort of try and, and go a bit more public with what was there, and that was when we um, were called in, um, first went there in 2011 to start to properly document the tracks in this area um, and, and bring them to the public's attention, and that's that's what we've been able to do with this paper and you know we kind of didn't realize when we first started going up there just how many tracks we were going to have to deal with um it's part of the reason it took us sort of six years to get the study completed what was the process like for collaborating with so many different groups of people you mentioned the indigenous community were really involved um but there was also csiro tech and um i understand universities as well um was that an interesting process yeah, I mean, this is the thing. This study has involved the efforts of lots of people. Um, you know, to start with, we've had to sort of just you know, gain the trust of the lawmen involved who care for this this coastline and the dinosaur tracks. And so initially spent a lot of time literally tracking dinosaurs out on these reef systems, um, which was, you know, really, really enjoyable. And it was great to sort of share our insights um, with with Galara Baloo and the, their lawmen and also learn about how they knew about these tracks as well. Okay. Um, and as, as we did that and started to realise just how extensive um, the exposures of tracks were, we realised that mapping them wasn't easy. It wasn't going to be easy. You know, they're underwater 
half the time they're all in the intertidal zone and tides in the Kimberley are huge, you know, 10 metres, up to 10 metres every day. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the areas where we started to find tracks are only accessible for, you know, a few hours for a few days every year when, the, when big spring tides come through. So we had to sort of time all our research trips to coincide with big spring tides. Um, they would give us the, the greatest opportunity to get to a lot of areas and also give us a bit more of a window to work in certain spots. And then because <clears throat> we couldn't, um, you know, just sort of lay out tape measures and casually sort of go about our work, because we had to, you know, do it quickly, we ended up, we teamed up with CSIRO, um, with Robert Slot and um, <coughs> Michael Boza, um, so two guys who invented Zebedee, which is a handheld laser scanner, um, and then also George Poropat, um, who had done a lot of photogrammetry. So we used the laser scanning and then photogrammetry, which we did on the ground, um, and also from drones, and then with a, a light aircraft that was flown by Jorg Harker from Airborne Research Australia at Flinders University. Mm-hmm. Um, we used that sort of integrated array of approaches and techniques to digitally map the coastline so that we would have a, a 3D digital record of all these surfaces and the tracks. And that meant that, you know, we could do could cover a lot of ground relatively quickly um, and then also analyse all the maps and, and, and tracks um, away from the site and in the comfort of our lab and not have to worry about getting washed away and deal with sharks and crocodiles and stuff all the time. Which no one, always nice. <laughs> no one wants to deal with it all the time. Do you plan on doing any further analysis with um, the, the high-resolution imagery collected? Um, absolutely, like because... All we've really done, and you know, we sort of we had to deal with for the whole coastline. There's about 70 track sites um, that we've documented so far. That's sort of 70 areas where there are concentrations of tracks, where there are things going on. And so far, you know, we've we've worked out how to do it, and we've sorted out the number of types of tracks that are there. So that's this huge diversity of 21 tracks that we mentioned. 21 different species? Yeah. Um, and now, using these 3D maps of some of these surfaces, we have to try and figure out exactly what all these dinosaurs were doing, you know, how they were moving, were they inter- interacting with each other, what was the um, sort of population structure, essentially, of, of different types of dinosaurs. Because we can look at, you know, the the abundance of certain tracks and also the occurrence. You know, did some dinosaurs have a preference for certain parts of the coastline or certain habitats that are represented in the rocks? I mean, that's all sort of stuff we can start to get into now. So it's a, entering an exciting new phase for us. Sure, it sounds almost like CSI, you know, seeing the footprints and what they can what they can tell. It's, can you tell us uh, what footprints can tell us that the fossils themselves cannot? Well, the thing that, that footprints, Sort of tell you, and this is what makes them, I think, so exciting. Is like that's where a dinosaur walked. You know, it's not like um, you know you're just looking at what's left of it after the remains have sort of you know decayed on the side of a river and then washed 20 kilometres down to get buried somewhere. That this is where the dinosaur was when it was alive. Um, we can so we can see, <clears throat> you know, where it was, 
what it was doing and then how it was moving and interacting with other dinosaurs so we can work out you know um, aspects of the locomotion of dinosaurs um, how fast they were moving and, and actually how they walked um, and then you know depending on on what sort of site you've got if there are multiple tracks um, and trackways you, you might be able to start to infer for instance whether you know, groups of dinosaurs were moving across the landscape at the same time, whether they were in herds, um, you know, if, if there are interactions between carnivores and herbivores, all that sort of stuff, it's just, it's all there written in the rock. We've just got to sort of carefully try and work out how to interpret it and read it. What a job that is. I understand you also found the world's largest footprint. Um, do you have any idea what that was doing there and what they might have been doing? I mean, it, it was there because it was left behind by an enormous dinosaur. And, um, <laughs> Weird. We, <laughs> I mean, we didn't at first recognise some of those giant tracks as tracks because they were sort of beyond our search image. Um, but as we started to map the area and, and get a look at it from above using the, the digital maps that we created and, and also just start to get a handle on the different types of tracks that are there because, you know, not... Not all dinosaurs have, have classic sort of three toes with some claws on them. Like sauropods, their tracks are sort of often just large oval-shaped depressions um, and the feet are sort of three or four times the size of the hands. Um, so recognising um, what the different types of tracks were, we, we started to, to sort of see that some of these huge, big, essentially rock pools that we'd been walking over every now and then were actually tracks. Um, they're the same shape as, as smaller ones, and a number of them line up. So, for instance, that one that everyone would have seen a photo of, where we've got Richard Hunter, one of the, the lawmen, lying alongside it, and what sort of 1.7 to 1.75 metre long track. Immediately behind it is a handprint, and it looks like there's part of another track alongside it. So, you know, when you start to have things like that happen, where you get depressions where you know, the shape is consistent with what you'd expect for, for the foot of a dinosaur, where you can see the sort of the mud and sand squished up around the edges and you can sometimes see the impression of like a heel area and toes and things. And when that sort of starts to happen again and again and things line up, you know, we had to sort of begin to accept that these were just giant dinosaur tracks. And, you know, sort of at first, we, you know, we were a bit apprehensive about it just because they are so enormous, but... Dinosaurs did get that big. We've got <laughs> skeletons or partial skeletons of, of sauropod dinosaurs from South America that are in that size range. Um, it's just that we've never seen tracks made by dinosaurs of that size and we've never seen any evidence of them in Australia. So Extra it's pretty exciting to recognise those tracks. And you know, if, if there was only one, I would have been a bit, bit more cautious about it. But after we've you know, found a number... Um, in that science range, we, we're fairly confident that, that they are indeed tracks. That track, that 1.7 metre long one, extrapolating up, how big an animal would have left it? So what we can do is look at the spacing of the tracks, so the distance between consecutive left and right hand and, and foot tracks um, to work out like the length of the torso. Mm -hmm. so that's one option we can use um, to figure out the height of the hip. And then we can also... Um, extrapolate from the proportions of, 
of similar dinosaurs to figure out, you know, we know their foot was this long and, and then from there we can work out the height of the leg and the hip. So for, for those animals, a conservative, like seriously, a conservative estimate is about five and a half metres at the hips. Oh, man. Um, so it's like big enough to step over a bus. It's huge. Um, you know, how exactly how long they were is, you know, it's a bit harder to, to be sure about because obviously we're just talking about what we can figure out from the tracks and sauropods the, the the length of the neck and the tail can vary quite a bit so you know you could could be looking at an animal that's 25 meters long you could be looking at an animal that's 35 or 40 meters long we, we're not really sure but we can be fairly sure about the height of the hip and that puts it in the realm of probably some of the biggest dinosaurs that's ever existed that have ever existed yeah biggest uh, animals in the land yeah man and to think that they were you know walking around in the Kimberley, 130 million years ago, it's pretty special. It's almost too much to comprehend, too much exciting stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's been good. I mean, we've, we've had to contain our excitement for about <laughs> six years, but it's good to finally let it go now. <laughs> <laughs> I can out. imagine. Now the whole world is excited for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for the great chat. We learned a lot. We've got a lot to chat about afterwards. Little did you know you stumbled into a dinosaur fan club. No, that's okay. I know there's there's a lot of people that are interested in this, so it's good. Yeah, it's really great. 40 metres was his not-so-conservative estimate of that dinosaur. And it would have been herbivore. Yeah, herbivore. They they have the prints of the pteropod ones that you're saying. Uh, What was its name? Megalopsis or something. Craig. Craig, yeah. (laughs) Gary. 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 (laughs) Snuggling around with his desensitized nose. Um, yeah, what's really a sort of beautiful overlay of understanding is the indigenous communities there had those song lines. Yeah. And mm. they were for an emu yeah. uh, figure. And emus are obviously modern day dinosaurs, really. So they had the exact right idea, just um, 130 million years out or just different. Just, yeah, slightly different. Yeah. So it is, yeah, it's very sort of poetic, very... It is poetic, yeah, it's lovely. Mm. It's a great um, yeah, collaboration story, and it sounds like it's been a really long time in the making for Steve. Hopefully he can go celebrate. Mm, yeah. Have a dinosaur-themed party. But imagine coming across something that's 40 metres long. Huge. Hopefully they find another one. It'd be good to find another track of that guy so they can see where he went. Yeah. Maccas. Drive through. <laughs> walk through. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it. Another episode of Interranauts, episode number five. We've got a tentative run of six episodes, so make sure to tune in for the next one. It, might it could be it. Could be it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> tell, remember to if, you want, if you want more episodes, yeah, tell your friends, get them listening. Subscribe on iTunes. That's what we're looking for, people. Give us a rating. Yes, anyway, well, thanks for listening. We had a great time. Give us a good rating, too, hopefully. Yeah. Mm, What's in there? Like? No, no, you just said give us a rating. Okay. Yeah, five would be good. Five out of five is optimal. But, you know, if you feel like we could do something better, let us know. And uh, don't give us a rating. Don't don't tell anyone. (laughs) Keep it to yourself. Okay, well, have a great rest of your day and we'll see you in two weeks. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.